Psalm 103, we will read the whole psalm. And this is what Holy Scripture says of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bible and turn again to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Do you like sports? Not everybody likes sports. I like some sports. I like the only good sport, which is hockey. And if you say ice hockey, you don't like hockey. Uh, But whatever sport it is you like or whatever thing it is you enjoy, maybe you have a favorite player on a favorite team. You may not know this, but mine is Mitchell Marner. Number 16, Toronto Maple Leafs. He is my all-time favorite player on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had the privilege of being at a Toronto Maple Leafs game a few weeks ago. It was the game when Mitchell Marner dipsy-doodled in the front of the net, knocked a puck out of the air, turned around, put it top shelf, beautiful goal. I was excited. I was very happy. 
I was extremely happy. I got out of my seat. My arms were in the air. I was high-fiving strangers around me. It was joy. It was utter happiness. I blessed Mitch. <laughs> Later in the same game, the referees missed a very obvious infraction against a teammate of Mitch. I might have called the referee's abilities into question. This is sometimes referred to as cursing, not the saying a bad word kind of cursing, more like calling down the just punishment of heaven for the incompetence of the referee kind of cursing, for which I was not terribly proud. I think that most of us understand what it means to bless someone and what it means to curse someone. And God placed a poem into the Psalter, into the book of Psalms, that calls on you and me to bless him. In fact, it calls on us to talk ourselves into blessing God. Did you notice how the psalm starts and ends with the very same line? Verse 1, verse 22, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is talking to himself. And so we can gather that in this psalm, at least generally, the writer of the psalm wants us to direct, or he, what he wants to do is direct his own soul to bless God. But bless God for what? Well, if you look into the middle of the psalm, you will see that he is dwelling on the, the mercy, the love, the expansive forgiveness of God toward sinners. And he's directing his inner person, his soul, to bless God for who God is, in particular for God's mercy, compassion that is shown in his forgiveness of sinners. And then he'll go on to call you and me to do the very same thing, to bless God for who he is in and of himself. But most specifically, for his compassionate, forgiving self. We have completed our series on the church. And that seemed like a very good time to treat ourselves after a somewhat technical series to one of these parts of the Bible, one of these golden passages in the Bible. Uh, we might say one of the favorite parts of the Bible. All of the Bible is wonderful. I don't want to discount any one part of it. But through the centuries, Christians sort of gather up these, these mountaintops of the Scripture, Psalm 23, Romans chapter 8, and Psalm 103 is often in that list. Because in this psalm, we rightly think about the very heart of what it means to be right with God. Kids, have you ever ruminated? You probably have. You didn't even know it. I've seen some of you do it. I mean, you're, you're, there's all kinds of people walking around after the service, and you're there with a little friend, and you're staring into the corner on a wall because a little spider is climbing up the wall. And you are looking at him, and you are thinking about him, and you're counting his six legs, his eight legs. 
and you're wondering about him, and you're wondering how he spins his web, and you're pondering where he's going to go, and hopefully you don't smush him, unless he's going to my office, then you can smush him. <laughs> but what are you doing when you're staring at the spider? You're thinking. That's what it means to ruminate. You're pondering. And I think the writer of this psalm was pondering something like that. He was ruminating on something that caused him to actually write this poem. That's often how poems come to be. Someone's thinking about some great event or some great person, and they say, I'm going to put this to poetry. And we know that this psalm is written by David. You see at the very top there, it says, of David. And King David has been pondering. He's not pondering spiders. He's contemplating or meditating on God as God, I think he's thinking about when God revealed himself, his full name, to Moses. Remember, the, the only Bible that David has is Genesis through Ruth. He's maybe got Job in there too, maybe a couple of his own psalms or such. And David, it looks to me like he's been thinking long and hard about Exodus 33 to Exodus 34, that time that, um, where Israel has done the golden calf thing, and the golden gaff, that's funny, because uh, what it was, it was a complete miss. And anyway, uh, the, he, the golden calf episode happens, and, and Moses is interceding on behalf of the nation, and then Moses finally says, I just want to see you, Lord. I want to see your face. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face. Anyone who sees my face will die. But he will pass by Moses when he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And so listen to this and, and try to picture it in your mind. There's Moses on the mountain hidden in the cleft of the, the rock. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. see there's more to God's name than mercy, love, and forgiveness. But I think David is zeroing in on that first part of God's self-revelation because this is the part that applies to him as a member of that covenant community. And that is why David quotes Moses, quotes Moses quoting God, uh, poetically here in Psalm 103. He sets up the quote. If you look down to verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then the next verse, verse 8, he's quoting what we just read from Exodus 34. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you like, that's a condensed poetical version of Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, why is David referencing that quote? I think it's because he's been thinking and meditating on it. He's been twirling it about in his mind, pondering it, ruminating on it. And God's revelation of himself to Moses, and it causes him to just break out in this psalm that begins with, Bless the Lord, 
O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. We're likely more accustomed to asking God to bless us. Or perhaps we're accustomed to the language of saying God is blessed or blessed. But in this psalm, David is instructing his own internal person to bless God. Now, when we ask God to bless us, we're asking him to bestow some favor or kindness out of his generosity. But clearly, we cannot add anything to God. He is an ultimate being. And so our blessing of God does not mean that the same thing as his blessing of us. We don't add anything to God. So what does David mean when he says this? When David says, when he calls on his own soul to bless God, he's demanding that his whole being engage in the spectrum of praise that befits the almighty God. It is a call to worship, to praise, to adore, to thank, or in the parlance of Grace Fellowship Church, to delight in God. To speak God's excellence to God. And he lays out four reasons. People like you and me, if you've been saved by God from your sins, must join him in blessing God. The first one is this. Saved people must Praise their generous God for all he has done for them. This is verses 2 through 6. So there's no doubt here that David's thinking in terms of the covenant in this psalm and that old covenant ratified with Moses and the people of Israel. It's between God and all his people. And it basically said, if you obey me, you'll have lots of babies and good crops. If you disobey me, you will suffer great loss and die. It is what is called a conditional covenant. It, the the Blessings of the covenant are conditioned on your, upon your obedience. And that is why Moses warned Israel when he brought them in, right up to the cusp of the land of milk and honey, Deuteronomy 6.12, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, be very careful, Israel, to never forget all the benefits God has bestowed upon you. And David instructs his soul now to not make the same mistake. He says in verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Any woman can grumble, any man can complain, but those blessed of God should always be blessing God in return. So David begins with some of the covenant benefits that belong to all those who are in union with God. For David, the first one is this, all his sins are forgiven by God. That's a nice place to begin, isn't it? Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. Now, here's a theme he's going to expand on later in this psalm, but this is a good time to notice that little word, all. Not some of my iniquity, not most of my iniquity. Rather, David says to his own person, look here, soul, all your sins are forgiven. And that is a good lesson for every member of the new covenant too. The Satan, the accuser, the slanderer, he will always charge your conscience with guilt. And he's often right, isn't he? We're sinners still. 
But learn from David to talk to yourself rather than engaging in conversation with the Satan. All my sins are forgiven in Christ. But of course, only if you are in Christ. Even David needed Jesus, who would come hundreds of years later, to save him. Has he saved you? You certainly have no reason to be confident he's forgiven you until you've given yourself entirely over to him, to the Savior God has provided. And there is zero forgiveness without Christ. But he goes on. Not only are all his sins forgiven by God, secondly, all his healings are derived from God who heals all your diseases. Now, there's two ways to read that phrase. The first way, I think, is the wrong way. It's to suggest that if you're really a Christian, you'll never get sick again. But we would provide that we don't live that, do we? (laughs) That doesn't seem to work because we all get sick. Just read the book of Job if you're having trouble believing that God would even use sickness in a believer's life for good. The better way to understand the phrase is the way I've worded it here. All his healings that he gets are derived from God. So if you have been healed, that came from God. God is certainly able to heal us. Think of what God did with Israel by the waters of Meribah, the waters of, do you remember what? Grumbling. Moses prays. God answers the prayer by those undrinkable waters, and he heals them, and he says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So in this one tiny verse, David is making it clear that all the iniquities and all the diseases of all the oppressed are no match for all the benefits of the Almighty God. That is, and that is, Great, well, how would I put this? The the great covenant-keeping God makes Santa Claus look like a miser. (laughs) David tells his soul, David tells his inner person that this God is the one who redeems your life from the pit. Look at verse 4. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You might remember a young man named Joseph thrown into a pit. Genesis 37, 23 says, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They didn't murder their brother, but they left him for dead. He was oppressed. He was treated unjustly. He was treated unfairly. And yet Joseph's life did not come to an end in that wilderness. Over many trials and many years, he was made the second most powerful man on earth at the time. And David might be thinking back to that distant relative and be confident that the Lord, if he's able, will give him the same attention. And he knows this because God is the one who forgives. He's the one who heals. He's the one who redeems. He's the one who crowns. He's the one who satisfies. And he does what is right for the ju- and just for the oppressed. Bless his holy name, says David. And then he moves on. Number two, saved people must praise their compassionate God for all he has not done to them. So we pick up here at verse 7 again, that verse where David sort of tips his cards to let us know that this is his meditation on Exodus 34. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. 
A God that overflows in steadfast love is something to behold. The word he uses here is a Hebrew word. It's fun to say, so I'll tell it to you. It's chesed. You want to say it? Here we go. Chesed. It's kind of a rolls off the tongue or comes out of the throat or something. It is, is a very, very specific Hebrew word, though. What's interesting about it, there's really no exact English equivalent. In our English Standard Version, it's almost always, not exclusively, but almost always translated as steadfast love. Those two words are translating one Hebrew word. And, and part of the reason it's so unique is because this word chesed is almost always tied to the idea of covenant. Because this word emphasizes loyal love, steadfast love, promise-keeping love, covenant-honoring love. Even covenants that are made not with human and God, but between two humans use this word. Remember when uh, young Jonathan comes along and makes a covenant with young David in 1 Samuel 18. Later on, chapters later, he says in 1 Samuel 20, this is Jonathan speaking to David, do not cut off your hesed, your steadfast love from my house. When you become the king and all your enemies are put down. Remember the covenant we made. Keep a loyal love for me and my house. So yes, it's love, but it is a love because we have made an agreement with one another. It is a loyal love, a love that issues forth in loyal mercy. Even if it's difficult or costly to me, I will keep my promise in love. So a God who's abounding in that will not do certain things to people in which he is in covenant with. First thing he will not do, he will not hold a grudge. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. To chide means to strive with words. Perhaps the idea of wearing somebody down or manipulating them with your words. Maybe you had a parent like that. When, and then when David speaks here of God's anger, he will not keep his anger forever. That word keep, is, he's, it's a word, it's used about like keeping a garden, meaning tending to it, caring for it, nursing it along. We have that expression in English about nursing a grudge, always bringing to mind how you've been offended, what your spouse said to you three weeks ago or worse, 30 years ago. You know, because love keeps a detailed record of, long, of wrongs. No, no, no. Aren't you glad God is not like that? Aren't you glad he does not keep his anger forever? Otherwise, you would never last. Uh, Isaiah caught this in Isaiah 57, 16. For I, he's speaking, uh, the Lord, in the first person here, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry for or because the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. In other words, you'd, if I stayed angry, you would all die. God's not a grudge holder against his saved people, praise the Lord. He will also not take revenge, verse 10. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Do you long for vengeance? A woman, a woman by the name of uh, Grandma Bernie wanted vengeance on her money-grubbing children and grandchildren, they were all waiting for her to die so they could have her money. They were fighting with each other. 
And so she started taking out full-page ads in the London, England newspapers with a picture of herself, a pretty hilarious picture. And on the ad, it said something like this, I'm not dead yet, and you won't stop fighting over my money, so I'm going to spend it all on dumb advertisements like this until I die. Vengeance. (laughs) God seeks no vengeance. Once the penalty's been paid, He does not repay us even though we have so deeply offended him. David says, man, if you figure this out, if God has saved you, you ought to roll your eyes backward and have a word with your complaining heart. Attention, soul, can you not see because of him hung on that tree? There is no payment to be made. God's awful wrath has been all paid. Christian, when is the last time you extolled and praised God for all the things he has not and will not do to you? Things that in your sins you fully deserved. Instruct your soul to get to bless God for this and then move on to the third thing. Saved people must praise their remarkable God for all he is toward them. This is verses 11 to 19. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his chesed, his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So David uses some geographical references here. This is the third out of four times in the psalm he'll speak about God's chesed, the loyal love to keep his covenant. He says, God's chesed toward you, it's higher than you can reach. And those sins of yours, he's taken them farther from you than you can imagine. So far, he says, they have been removed. They have been placed at a distance that removes from existence. Our own globe seems to have endpoints on the top and the bottom, a North Pole and a South Pole, but you ever notice that there's no West Pole and there's no East Pole? And it's as if the the psalmist is saying, you know, if he sent it to the North Pole, that'd be great, but he sent it as far as the East is from the West. Are you prone to confess your sins to God in prayer, then pick them all up again at the end of the prayer and walk away with them? Brother, sister, walk in the chesed of God, that skyscraping loyal love. If he has forgiven you, he has taken your sins away from you. He has cast them behind his back. He has tread them underfoot. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. He's blotted out the memory of them from his mind. Why are you taking them home with you again before, when you've been at the gracious throne of your king? Leave your sins and your guilt at his feet. See them nailed to his cross. God in his abounding love and mercy bundles up all of your sins, puts them on a rocket bound to the outer rim of the galaxy, only even that's not far enough. For David understands that if there were even an ounce of sin, he could not remain in the presence and stand before a holy God. It must be taken permanently and entirely away. What kind of being would be so kind as to do that? A compassionate one. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. 
That word frame is often used in the Old Testament in the realm of your thinking, your thoughts, the intentions, sort of the, the framing of your thinking, the intentions of the thoughts. And there may be something here that is pointing us to the mercy of God and understanding how corrupt and how weak we really are. Do you remember God's assessment of mankind before the flood and then again after the judgment of the flood? It says he looks at man and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man's frame, his inclinations are all wrong, even before there's a thought. At his best, we are still just dust. That's not a term of endearment. It's one that highlights our inauspicious beginning as dirt. Even saved humans are not much more than weak sinners. No wonder, then, David is blessing God. The word bless has in it the idea of bow down, kneel, fall down before someone of greater importance. David is falling down in wonder before his God and looking at God and saying, when I think about what I am and I think about what you are, you have such compassion. You are overflowing in compassion. Just like a dad who has compassion on a toddler who's throwing a hissy fit after a long day with no nap, two shots at the doctor's office and having to wait in line for half an hour at Walmart. I mean, you know, the kids it shouldn't be throwing the hissy fit, little toddler, but you understand. You have compassion. God never excuses our sins, but he is compassionate toward us. Where does that compassion come from? How can David be so sure he is compassionate? Well, it comes right from Exodus 33. Back in verse 19 in Exodus 33, the Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's the exact same word, translated mercy, compassion. It's the idea of the inner inclination of the heart. He will be compassionate on whom he will be compassionate. And who is that? He's going to tell us in a moment. But first, a little more reflection on big, bad humankind. Look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Friends, we are so frail. Our motives are corrupt. Our bodies are dust our days are short. We blossom, then wilt. We flourish, then fade. We bloom, then it's doom. Who are we to compare ourselves to God? Our lives are just a vapor. They are so short. And look at verse 19. Look at the Lord. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He is strong. He is eternal. He's in charge. He determines destinies. He rules over the rulers. He never fades. He never shrinks. He never stumbles. He never thinks or does anything wrong. What chance do we have to stand before that God? I'll tell you of that chance. It comes in the fourth and final occurrence of that word said. Look at verse 17. But the chesed of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children 
to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. See, the psalm begins with the author telling his soul to bless God. And along the way, he's called on all of us to bless God. And this might surprise you, but if you're not blessing God, then you're certainly cursing God. You're probably not walking around saying, I curse God, I curse God, or maybe you are. But even if you manage to not say that exact phrase, you're still cursing God. Because you're... The the vacuum that your lack of cursing leaves is always filled with the poison of cursing. If you're not blessing, then you are cursing. If blessing means to speak well of, to praise, to thank, to delight in, then cursing is the opposite of this. It is to speak poorly of, to accuse, to ignore, to reject. Do you curse God? You most certainly do when you speak poorly of him or use his name as a cuss word. Do you curse God? You most certainly do when you accuse him of causing all your troubles or when you give him no credit for all the good and life and breath that he has given you or turn your back on his compassionate invitation to be born again. Your disbelief, your finding life in the things that he created rather than in the creator himself, your self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-sustaining, self-self-self, all of this is like you standing up and looking God in the face and saying, I curse you. The fact is you cannot bless God until God has blessed you. Only those who have been restored into right relationship with God are able to bless God and the merciful, gracious, compassionate God holds out his hand of blessing to you if you will come. But you have to come. David got right with with God under the terms of his covenant. And you have to get right with God under the terms of the new covenant. And that new covenant is instituted by the Lord Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except through me. The New Testament makes it clear, like I said earlier, even David had to get to God through Jesus. The Jesus who had not yet been born. Romans chapter 4, read it for yourself. Jesus' saving work reaches all the way back to Eden. It reaches all the way forward to the new creation. And all who by faith receive or trust on Christ and reject their sins will be made right with God forever. Blessed by God with what Paul calls in Ephesians 1, all the spiritual blessings in Christ. All of that compassion of God for sinners is funneled through Christ. There is no other way to tap into the grace and compassion of God except through Christ. It is an amazing thing to think that God would take people like me, people like you, who curse his name and ignore his benefits and have compassion on them. But he will and he does. So follow that man David in fear and Keep and remember to fear God. This is verses 17 and 18. To fear him is to live your life like he's real. To, as if all the things that he said so far in, in Psalm 103 are true. Uh, to keep God's covenant is to tend to the relationship like you would tend to your garden. You're going to tend to the relationship you can have with him through his son, the Lord Jesus. 
Look, Jesus was born to fulfill the covenant David lived under, and then he instituted this new and better covenant, but that's, that, this new covenant comes with the same chesed. It comes with the same loyal love. The only difference is that this new covenant doesn't hinge on your obedience. It hinges entirely on Christ's. And guess what? He obeyed. Jesus came into the world to live the life Adam failed to live, you failed to live. He never sinned. He was tempted, tried, troubled by the world, troubled by Satan, and yet he lived perfectly, holy, in thought, word, and deed. He kept all the requirements of the old covenant and the old law, all of it, every jot and tittle. And because of that, his righteousness was proven and made known to the world. He, he showed himself to be the spotless lamb of God, but Jesus was rejected by this world. We all conspired in our hearts in his crucifixion and in his suffering. And so he bled and he died for sinners and he became like that Old Testament sacrifice for sins. He was the lamb of God who who takes the guilt of sin away for those who fear him and keep his covenant. How does a person do that? Well, they repent. They look to God and admit that they are sinners in need of a savior. They admit that even their best intentions are all stained with bad motives and they look at their lives. They look at what God says is sin. And they say, yes, I, I have lied, I have stolen, I have lusted, I have dishonored my parents. And besides that, there's a whole lot of other stuff too. And these people come clean with God and they admit it all. But they don't stop there. They also look at the Savior God provided, Jesus Christ. And they don't see at the cross a defeated religious zealot. They see God in the flesh sent to die in their place. And while they can hardly believe it's true, they call on that God to act out from this love and kindness and mercy that he has revealed through places like Psalm 103 and to save them. Have you prayed that prayer? Oh, Lord, save me, the real me. Have you done business with God like that? If this psalm is about anything, it's about crushing every last vestige of hypocrisy, lukewarm religion, and false profession. So Christian, hear a rebuke here for you too. When David says to his soul, back in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, he is saying, let all of me be given to all of you, Christian brother, Christian sister. It is time to be done with petty mumbling of hymns and half-hearted readings of scripture and prayerless days and sinful nights, calling on God when you're in trouble and ignoring him and his benefits when you're not. It is time to seek the face of God like David did, like Moses did before him. He is there to be found if you will honestly look. You say to your soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Only the soul saved by him can do it. And all of those who love and worship him will do it, not perfectly, never with the consistency we dream of, but we will do it truly and we will do it from the heart and only because he has saved us and made us new. No wonder David ends the psalm with this soaring crescendo, the fourth observation here, every created being everywhere must praise the almighty God for all that he is. 
It's not good enough for his soul alone to bless God. It's not good enough for his soul and yours to bless the Lord. A God this generous, this compassionate, this sin-removing and grace-and-doing must have every sentient being in the universe join the choir. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. It's like David is saying, yeah, normal angels, you're great. But I want the army angels too. Uh, host is a word for armies. And so he's saying, look, I want them all. I'm calling on the big guys. Get to work, lads. Start up the choir. Tune your harps. I want the mighty voices of the strong angels to lead the praise. And then even more, he goes on in verse 20 to say, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion, which is everywhere, which means all his works in every place, walruses, whales, oceans, orbs, lions, lilies, all of you join in with little old me, and he ends the psalm right where he started, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Can you join that choir? Or do you need to come clean with God? Have you been presuming on his benefits, ignoring his compassion, not accessing his forgiveness? Have you been tolerating fakery with your divine friend? Whether for the first time or the one millionth time, come all the way to God and bless the Lord. Bless him with all of yourself, all of your all. You don't have to stand up and cheer like me at a Toronto Maple Leafs game, but you do need to get all of your all into a state of true engagement with your maker. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Do it today, do it tomorrow, do it every day until the last day when we are finally home with the Lord forever. Let's sing of that day to one another now.